Corpus Christi Solidarity Network is an organization made up of coastal band activists committed to anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-fascist, anti-war, anti-transphobic, anti-homophobic, anti-ableist, pro-union, pro-environment, pro-worker, okay, and pro-people organizing activism and, frankly, agitation. Workers, students, and parents are often too busy to engage in or plug into every struggle. Our goal is to centralize organizing efforts so people of all walks of life are able to participate in class struggle in whatever way they can. Rallying behind the classic slogans, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, and an injury to one is an injury to all, we do our best to make sure our work is accessible to, inclusive of, and beneficial to all. Part of our project is our zine, Gulf Wars, our CC Soul media channel on YouTube, and this podcast you're listening to right now. We are not here to give a voice to the voiceless. We're here to amplify the voices that are underrepresented or completely shut out by a system not built for us. We are not voiceless, and neither are you. Activism is not an exercise in dialogue and ideas. It is a genuine struggle for political power, and we believe that power belongs to the people. Justin is Associate Executive Director at Raices based in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. Justin has been an immigration lawyer since 2008 after graduating from the University of Texas School of Law. Uh, before joining Raices Corpus Christi office in 2014, he was a supervising attorney at the South Texas Pro Bono Asylum Representation Project in Harlingen, Texas. Justin serves on the boards of the South Texas Human Rights Center in Falfurias. Uh, the Coastal Bend Coordinated Community Response Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the State Bar of Texas Immigration and Nationality Section. Okay, so like Jenny said, we're going to be starting more broadly. So first question, since it's very relevant right now, um, Justin, what impact, if any, have the recent weather conditions had on the lives of undocumented folks? Well, we've been working with affected communities around the coastal bend, especially in the first hit areas right around Victoria, Aransas, Refugio, and all of those regions. And as we've been working to do disaster relief by reaching out to people to offer immigration services, what we've heard from them is that what was a natural disaster for everyone broadly was coming in addition to a man-made disaster, which was police and ICE collusion. So that goes all the way back to even before Trump's announcement of terminating the DACA program. Uh, it goes all the way back before some of the worst changes we've seen from the federal government. But these are communities that have been living uh, for a long time with the threat of a police stop, breaking a family apart, and turning into a deportation. And so what families have told us is, these communities want information about their rights. They want to know what protections they have if they're stopped. They want to know about their right to uh, seek protections in any kind of court that they have. Um, they just want to know what the Constitution provides for them and what they can do to stay safe. And what they've told us is our first priority is rebuilding our house, going home, staying alive after the natural disaster. But to make our family secure, we have to be secure against a stop that might break our family apart at the same time. So they're dealing with basically a natural disaster and a man-made disaster at the same time. A lot of people don't really um, 
grasp the realities of what's going on. So could you um, tell us what does deportation actually look like? Well, deportation is a brutal experience. It can look like a husband dragged out of a car after a routine traffic stop, questioned on the basis of what the officer thinks is his race, and then without so much as a chance to pack a bag or say anything to his family, taken away in handcuffs and taken out of the country as early as that day. Now, that shouldn't happen to most people because most people should be able to assert their right to see an immigration judge. They should absolutely demand all the protections that they're entitled to. But if people don't know their rights and they don't know how to defend themselves, that's a real risk of what deportation can look like. And based on our broken immigration system, deportation in many cases looks like no chance to come back. And so rather than that immediate and complete loss of a family member, we want to help people know their rights and prepare so that as many as possible of those cases do end up with fighting a case in court, bonding out of detention, and being able to really use the legal protections that people are entitled to. So many people have had questions on um, what is actually happening in these detention centers, as they're called. Um, so could you elaborate on that? Here in South Texas, we have a whole network of detention camps run by ICE, or worse, run by private prison companies that ICE pays. And to most people from day to day, these detention centers are hidden. So they're in smaller communities. People here in Corpus Christi are often detained in Laredo, sometimes in the Valley, uh, at Port Isabel Detention Center, or sometimes in Houston. And so all of these places are two or more hours away, and they're places that families are usually not familiar with. So families who don't know how to locate a detained loved one often face what to them is the total disappearance of a family member who sometimes doesn't come home from work because, again, after a routine stop that turned into racial profiling and broke a family rather than resulting in a ticket, they then lose their loved one into a place they've never seen before. And when you go to one of these detention centers, they're surrounded by barbed wire, they're heavily fortified, and certainly if you go to the Port Isabel Detention Center in the Valley, it really classically looks like a detention camp. It's carved out of the middle of the brush, it has guard towers, and these are people being detained who are not even accused of any crime. These are people that are being detained nominally simply to ensure that they're going to come to court. Um, but of course, many families lack the funds to pay thousands of dollars to bond out, and they're so unfamiliar with the process that this whole detention system acts to coerce and blackmail people who give up and sign away their rights. And so that's what an immigration detention center looks like. Um, it's not a pretty picture. And I think most of us would agree that in a broken system in which a, a family member really had no way to apply for legal status anyway, um, this is not something that we want to be doing in America, still less doing it in the shadows where most of us are not aware of it and where the government uh, operates really with no accountability at all. So going on to more of a theoretical situation that seems not so theoretical, um, how likely is it that we will see internment camps if this administration keeps, um, by administration obviously I mean the Trump administration, keeps pushing an anti-immigrant agenda um, and it, the parallels between um, Sheriff Arpaio's self-described concentration camps and internment camps? Well, I think that's a great question because language is important here. 
our government uses languages, language to distort and distract from what it's actually doing. So I think when you think about those terms, you can use the visual realities too. If you line up a picture of the Japanese internment camps here in Texas in the 1940s, and you line that up against a picture of one of the family detention camps that our government is operating right here in Dilly and Carnes, Texas, other than one being black and white, that looks like the same image. So right now in our backyard, I think you would be hard-pressed to argue that's not an internment camp. Now, the other thing we think of when we hear an internment camp is, is a broad detaining, rounding up of people that are that are within our population, our diverse communities, singling out particular groups based on something like their race or their national origin, and broadly isolating them, concentrating them into a place where they're segregated off from everybody else. That's what we think of as internment camps. Well, when you look at both Texas government and federal government policy changes over the last few years, I think you can broadly see that that kind of isolation and segregation and singling out is exactly what's happened. So. 600,000 Texas families would have been protected by Obama's DAPA program, the Deferred Action for Parental Accountability program. They would have received protection and work permit much like DACA. But instead, Texas's then Attorney General, Greg Abbott, sued to block Obama from granting those protections. Meaning that then when the Trump administration took over and changed the deportation and detention priorities to include almost everyone, including moms and dads who may be driving down the road, right? and stopped for a ticket and come to ICE's attention, you can see that Greg Abbott very uh, concretely ensured that half a million families who are primarily Latino, right, are now vulnerable to this change in priorities by President Trump, who now is interning moms and dads again in these um, immigration detention camps that are all around Texas. So I think to your question, not only is an immigration prison effectively an internment camp, but I think that the way our government's policies are operating to herd people into them also parallels what we mean when we think of internment camps. So we also have a whole list of questions related specifically to DACA. Um, and since Trump's announcement uh, about DACA's rescinding um, last week, there have been some developments since then. Um, so what can you tell us about the bipartisan deal um, and what it means concretely for DACA recipients? Well, a lot of DACA recipients here in the Coastal Bend ask us, uh, what's out there? What's next? DACA recipients that we work with are primarily very uh, active people. Um, these are people who have strong initiative in their communities and who are actively working on their own plans and plans for those that are, that are in their networks on what to do. And so we've always had confusion about whether the DREAM Act existed in the past and some people informally have even called DACA the DREAM Act. But now what we're seeing is the DREAM Act actually materializing as a possibility in Congress. And we've heard a lot of conflicting signals from both parties, from certainly the, the uh, presidential administration about what this would look like and who's willing to support it. But one thing that I can say for sure is the support for the DREAM Act is increasing on both sides of the aisle. That doesn't mean that it's a time not to advocate. In fact, it means this really is a time to push elected officials very hard for accountability. And when you go back to accountability, what that means is no Republican or Democrat who now supports the DREAM Act is doing anyone a favor. What they're doing is their job. Sure. If they had passed the DREAM Act and reformed the immigration system, we would never have needed DACA. We would never have needed DAPA. We would never have had to 
have a young person that's grown up their whole life in the United States pay almost $500 every two years and wonder if they would have their status renewed. No, we would have had a path to residency, recognizing what we all know, which is that DACA holders are very much part of the communities that they live in here in the United States. So what we see is Congress, in some cases, finally stepping up to do its job, but it's a job that they've refused to do for years. And so this is where accountability really takes over. It's the time to press them even harder. And when you look at how DACA was initially created, this was no favor by President Obama. This was undocumented youth who themselves took risks, themselves did civil disobedience. You're jumping the gun on our question. So, hey, well, <laughs> you, you say it better than I do. So, um, But yeah, no, I mean, it, exactly like you guys were saying, I mean, you know, it's that leadership of the directly affected immigrant youth community that got DACA in the first place. And so, you know, a lot of folks that you ask, you know, they're hearing some of the messages in the media, oh, um, poor dreamers, um, they're so, um, you know, I guess, abandoned by the system or what, what recourse do they have? Well, what we're hearing from a lot of uh, immigrant youth leaders is the opposite, is that they're energized, they're more committed than ever to holding uh, elected officials accountable. And a lot of the folks from that pre-DACA generation have said, look, we were there before, okay. We won this the first time. We can win something better again, and we're ready to organize. You know, but I think it takes exactly what y'all are doing with this type of uh, outreach that you're working on. We have to all talk to each other. We have to stay working together. You know, um, to keep that accountability going. So that that answered a good part of the second question <laughs> that I had. Um, but I mean, I guess also, I mean, Raices has been having these DACA clinics all across the state um, and here locally as well. Um, and y'all are having, uh, y'all had one here yesterday. Um, and many of us are gonna be at the social forum and the public events at the Unitarian Church this weekend. Um, but what else can, I guess, allies do um, to you know, continue building solidarity with DACA recipients as well as the undocumented community? What, what's the next step for allies, you would say? Well, that's a great question. And, and I would just say not to ask me, but ask somebody who has DACA. And uh, I think there's a great uh, opportunity that we have to work together, come together as a community, allies, people who are directly affected. Um, this is the time where, you know, uh, the word that we hear a lot, intersectionality, I think is more relevant than ever. So we have to come together as all kinds of the community uh, that are being marginalized. And, you know, uh, you talked about internment camps, right? What are the different sectors, you know, of the kinds of identities that we have in our community that make us diverse? All of those, I think it's time uh, that across all of those, as advocates, we come together and work together. Um, in terms of the leadership, I definitely think that does have to come from people who have lived this experience. Um, and, and I think in Raices, that's very much our priority is um, we're working with DACA holding youth uh, in, the, in various cities where we work to... Um, give information about legislation that's out there like the DREAM Act, but then ask them for their feedback. When we do advocacy to elected officials, we wanna be elevating, lifting up the voices of DREAMers and of people who have DACA, of young people who never did qualify for DACA, right? Um, and their families. Those are the voices that we wanna lift up. And so I really think it's a process of practicing that engagement and that openness and really asking. Because I think somebody who's an ally um, absolutely has a place in this kind of advocacy, but I think it, for many people it's a matter of developing skills that they may not have had. 
And that's okay. This is a challenging time for all kinds of sectors in our community. Um, but I think it's tapping into that leadership uh, of the immigrant youth community itself and, uh, and finding out what, what is the direction that people want to go in. Um, what we've heard from immigrant youth is that, yes, uh, folks definitely want to work on the DREAM Act. Um, they want to advocate to uh, legislators. We saw very, very many undocumented youth and youth with DACA testifying at the state legislature against SB4. And we've seen immigrant youth taking very strong leadership on issues that aren't directly related to DACA. So we, have, we see organizers working all around Texas, not just against SB4, but against 287G agreements and saying, listen, um, maybe I have DACA, right? Maybe I qualify to renew DACA and maybe I'll have it for another two years. But I'm not gonna stop there. I wanna work to make sure that my sheriff doesn't apply to be an ICE agent because that makes my whole community less safe. So I think that it's that asking folks what they're working on and deferring to that leadership of the directly affected community um, that's really important now. So thinking about the young people who trusted in the system and handing over all the information um, to apply for the DACA program that is now in the hands of the Trump administration, um, it's pretty horrifying. Um, does this speak to a flaw in settling for DACA, a flaw in the system itself, or possibly both? Well, I think what immigrant families have always known is that we've been living in a deeply flawed immigration system for decades. And so it's really a matter of looking forward to all the kinds of protection and layers of security that are out there. And what we're seeing now is it's, it's that community defense that is the strongest form of protection that people have. And so it's true that the government has information, you know, that DACA holders submitted when they came out of the shadows and said, look, here's my address, here's my name, I'm willing to go through this process um, in exchange for the status that, that I'm being offered by the U.S. government. And in some of the lawsuits we saw starting around the country against Trump last week, that's in one of them, you know, one of the lawsuits being brought is asking a federal judge to say, you know what, this is illegal for the federal government to have issued this, um, this guideline and then suddenly turning around and uh, doing a 180-degree different approach, right? We haven't heard the administration say it's going to take action against people who have DACA, but the Trump administration has been very, very silent on that and many other issues, right? Uh, and so a federal court may find that's illegal, right? I think they should. But again, that's not where I would focus. Whatever a federal court decides on that, everybody who has DACA and who knows the government may have their information, needs to organize to protect themselves with the community defense as their strongest ally. And so what that means is have a network of people who are ready to uh, support you, um, be prepared, know your own legal defenses that you have in immigration court. Many people qualify for a defense. They could potentially be eligible for a green card if they fought their case in front of a judge. They may have no way to do that now, but only if facing deportation, they could then assert the defense. Others don't. But anybody who's facing some type of immigration uh, threat to their security and their family security, they need to be ready to defend themselves along with their community. So public pressure has been very effective even up till now during the Trump administration. We've seen um, young people with DACA in San Antonio, Dallas, around the country mobilize their communities to do call-in campaigns, to do uh, public pressure, to do protests. And we've seen that this works. We've seen that ICE does back down when confronted with enough community pressure. And again, it's those young people themselves who refused to sign, refused to accept the threat to their lives, and stood up and advocated 
with the community network that they'd already built up and that they're ready to invoke. So I think that that is the most important plan to have in place and the most important kind of network to build. Um, and at that point, that needs to be the focus. Do you feel with all the eyes on DACA right now that this places a barrier around our ability to organize and defend undocumented folks who aren't eligible for DACA? Or does this leave an opportunity to talk about how maybe DACA didn't go far enough? Well, what we've heard from a lot of immigrant families that we work with is it's never okay to make a compromise that's going to settle out, demonize, or, uh, you know, uh, paint with some kind of, like, uh, stigma, right, in exchange for something else, for some type of protection or basic dignity that our community should have anyway. And we've seen uh, our own government, right, time and again ICE, has used this approach. So we hear about how ICE's operations are only targeting criminal aliens, right? Um, we hear language used over and over again to tell us that there's one part of the immigrant community that isn't worthy, right? And the other part is. Um, we've heard over and over again how young people who deserve DACA deserve DACA because, well, they didn't commit the, the illegal act their parents did, right? By coming to the United States without authorization. Or because, oh, well, you know, DACA holders have to show that they're in school or they graduated. Well, what we hear communities increasingly standing up and saying is that's not acceptable. Because somebody who didn't go to high school also belongs to the community. Somebody who has a criminal background also belongs to our community. Nobody is deportable because of some category they're in. When we hear the government talking about criminal aliens, those in the thousands are moms and dads who were deported because they had no legal way to legalize their status, came back to the United States because they had no legal way to come back to reunite with their family, and now suddenly can be classified as federal felons. Those are what criminal aliens are, right? And so you see language being used to tell us that the community should be fragmented. And so that rhetoric always operates to divide us. And so I think increasingly that's what our communities are realizing, right? It's standing up and saying, look, um, I may be an undocumented youth with DACA, but I'm not going to accept you deporting my parents or building a wall in exchange for protection that you should already be according me. And, uh, you know, I think just to, to really put that into a highlight, um, you know, we've got some art here in our lobby by uh, an artist out in California who has portrayed a lot of immigration issues and um, that affect immigrant youth, you know, and it says, I'm here because my parents are courageous, right? And so I'm going to reject anybody's attempt to say, okay, well, protect this group and not the other one. And it goes to the broader sense. I mean, y'all are a solidarity network. The word solidarity has a lot of meaning too, right? It means, well, you're not going to, you know, I'm not going to accept that you say, protect this one group, right? Give me my rights because I'm an immigrant, but you don't have to give rights to trans people, right? Or LGBT populations or, you know, uh, women's rights. No, we're going to reject all of that. And uh, I think this is the time that in the immigrant advocacy especially, we have to say, no, we're not going to accept trading one area of security for another one. So I think you touched on some of these points already, but I'm going to bring this up again just in case you want to expand on any of them. But what do you think won us DACA to begin with, and what are the lessons we should take with us from that era of immigrant rights organizing, and what do you think is going to take to revive our immigrant rights movement? Well, I think when you look at how DACA was won, it was immigrant youth themselves who called for DACA, um, who organized for it, who put themselves on the line for it. And I think for the movement that we're seeing now, we're going to have to look to the same leadership. And so I think that all parts of our community uh, are going to have to find ways to work together. 
and that means deferring to and raising up those voices uh, of immigrant youth now. And I think that that's what's going to carry us through. But um, it's going to take all different kinds of people. So um, not only making sure that that leadership holds our officials accountable to pass legislation like the DREAM Act, but organizing now on every level. And that's what's, I think, increasingly uh, a sign of the times that we live in. So it's personal security, organizing for that, all the way up to the legislative uh, federal realm, and then looking at everything in between. You know, um, police stops, right? Right here in Corpus Christi in Nueces County, Sheriff Kalin has applied for a 287G agreement so that he can be deputized as an ICE agent. After he said in February to almost 300 people out here in, in the community, I will not direct my officers to enforce immigration law because I don't want to, right? And so um, talking to them about the early days of DACA, right? Those were undocumented youth to put themselves on the line. Who's putting themselves on the line every day to go to work in Corpus Christi? Moms and dads who are undocumented, right? When they get stopped by a sheriff's deputy, right? Or out there in the more rural counties where people are hardworking parents, they're putting themselves on the line every day. So I think just as immigrant youth took the risk that they did to get DACA, when you look at immigrant families right now, they're taking those risks every day to live their lives. And so I think the leadership is going to come from those families also, from, that, from the community. And I think uh, those stories of what families are living through every week, every month, are very powerful. And I think that the more uh, we are open to those stories, we hear them, and we lift those up, that's where we're going to start seeing a change in the long term, and we're going to get through this period. And what can you tell us about um, SB4, the Sanctuary Cities Bill, and how it could play into all this? Well, SB4 is really part of that big picture strategically working at the state and federal level that we've seen to mark out, marginalize, and put uh, people at risk, right, who are immigrants around Texas. You look at the federal government's assault on immigrant communities from the Trump administration's broadening of the priorities to 287G, which means the federal government offers local police and sheriffs to be ICE agents um, to enforce immigration law. SB4 was a critical piece of that puzzle because it, it was going to make that offer one that a police department literally could not refuse. So SB4 was going to make it illegal for police not to cooperate with federal immigration enforcement. And so if the federal government offered local police to work with them in any one of a number of ways, they wouldn't be able to say no. And police chiefs and sheriffs couldn't tell their officers not to do immigration enforcement um, just of their own volition. So SB4 is now frozen because Judge Garcia in San Antonio, federal judge, ruled what we all already knew, which was that this law was an unconstitutional overreach um, and so for now, that's frozen, right? But one thing that we've been working very much to uh, let people know about in the community is that doesn't mean it's time to step back from knowing your rights, okay? Because police officers now, under the, under the injunction from Judge Garcia, still can ask. An individual officer is allowed to ask someone's immigration status, but they still don't have to answer. And that officer cannot arrest the person because they don't answer, or even if they do answer, and so now more than ever, communities need to know their rights, even though SB4 is, is temporarily frozen by that injunction. Um, so that's a critical piece of the puzzle that we have to make sure it doesn't come into place. And whatever all the alphabet soup of puzzle pieces are out there, right, 287G, SB4, 
whatever letter number you throw, those rights are the things that people need to know. And that's where they themselves assert their own power as a community. The right to remain silent, um, the right to insist on their uh, due process in court. Those are rights people have with local police and with ICE either way. A lot of times people ask, how am I gonna know who's coming to my door? You know, uh, and wants to come in. What, how do I know who that officer is? We've heard reports of ICE officers dressed as local police so that it's impossible to tell who they are. Our response is, why do you need to know? You have the same rights, which whoever's at your door. You have the same right to remain silent. You have the same right to due process. Um, and, and you should protect yourself uh, no matter what. So the Constitution's not going anywhere. It's going to be the same Constitution whether SB4 is in place or not. And people need to fight for their rights under that. And so finally, just to wrap up this interview portion, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with around all of this? I think I would say, um, as somebody living here in Corpus Christi, um, we're at a really crossroads time. We saw 18 287G agreements signed very recently this year in counties around us. Sheriff Kalin has a pending 287G agreement right now in which he's asking ICE to deputize him as an ICE enforcer. We have a city and county which have not yet joined the litigation against us before. We're a primarily Latino city with a very strong story history of organizing around civil rights. So I, I would leave people with a, with a question. When Judge Garcia wrote his order, freezing SB4, because it's unconstitutional, he noted the vast amount of people who testified against SB4 at the legislature. He noted each of the largest cities of Texas who joined the litigation against that law, with one exception. There was one major city in Texas that wasn't on that list that Judge Garcia pointed to when he froze the law, and that's Corpus Christi. So my question is, for people who live in Corpus Christi, are you familiar with SB4? Do you know what that law was going to turn this community into? Do you know what that was going to look like? And do you know why your county of Nueces and your city of Corpus Christi have neither joined the litigation nor even condemned SB4? That's what I would leave people with, is that question. And I would, I would pose that question to anyone that lives in this community. I don't think it matters what your uh, identity is uh, in any group. I don't think it matters your race, religion, anything else about you. If you live in Corpus Christi, I think you should be able to answer that question. The most anti-immigrant, um, clearly racially discriminatory, um, constitutionally overreaching law in memory passed by the Texas legislature and our county of Nueces and our seat of Corpus Christi have taken no position and no role in combating that law, uniquely among Texas. And I think that's a question that's relevant to anyone that lives in the city. Thank you, Justin, for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate the work that you do. We're here hanging out with Daniela. Um, just for starters, before we get into the thick of it, just tell us about you as a person right now. Um, well, right now, um, I 
I'm a personal trainer and I'm a bartender. So I was working at an accounting firm, but last week was my last week because I started school full time. So I want to, I need to finish my school before, you know, next year. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I'm back in school full time. And so now I'm kind of, anytime that I have off, I'm dedicating my time to cooking for people and meal prep or training. And then weekends, I just bartend. So. You want to shout out your Instagram? So Oh, yeah. <laughs> Follow me. Um, what's my Instagram? Uh, Miss okay, Miss Daniela Gonzalez, but Miss is M-S, not M-I-S-S. Yeah, M-S-D-A-N-I-E-L-A-G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. That's my name. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anything else important about you right now? Um, I'm about to move into a new apartment, and hopefully in a month or two, get by my own car so those are two pretty exciting things going on in my life very normal things (laughs) 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 so then I I guess the next thing um we want to know is just a little bit about your upbringing and maybe what brought you and your family here to begin with okay um well when I was five was when my parents decided to make the move um I was from I'm from Monterrey Nuevo Leon Mexico and, um, uh, yeah, when I was five, I'm, it came in pretty late because I remember when I started school, there was already, it was probably like mid, probably October. It was, I came in late and I remember, oh my gosh, I was a little girl speaking nothing but Spanish, going to Dawson Elementary and I remember crying my butt off. I, I, I would not let go of my mom. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it started. My parents, my grandma had already lived here, so she was going through the naturalization process and we moved in with her. Um, so it was like my whole family and my grandma living in a little two bedroom apartment. (laughs) But you know, uh, yeah, that's kind of, I came here and then I went to Dawson and then Grant and then, uh, Carol. So that's basically, I had, I feel like my child, my, my childhood was pretty normal after that, sure. but I learned English and in first grade, all of my, my kindergarten years, I, I don't really, I don't remember having friends, <laughs> but first grade was finally when I started to get the whole American thing and then learn English. And that's how I started reading and writing. So. Okay. So then what do you think is the hardest part, um, either for you or for your family about your experience being undocumented? Um, well, you know, them not being able to get a job, I think was the hardest part, you know? We always had to be renting houses. We always had to be like, um, you know, we couldn't do ever, anything the right way. I think that that's the hardest part that you, you have to either, we had to have everything in the name of my grandma, you know, like it was, it's hard because you, you, it's true, like you are hidden, you know, you're, you're invisible to the government, you're invisible to the United States, and not that you want to be, but you have no choice. Like, I think that was the hard part, that we could never, you know, do things the correct way. Um, but, I mean, you know, that, that didn't really stop us, so I guess sure. that's good. <laughs> um, so can you speak to your experience finding out? 
that you were <laughs> Yeah, so w when I was 16, you know how that's when you get your, your uh, driver's permit or whatever? Well, all of my friends were getting it, and I was like, oh, yeah. Like, they're like, when are you going to get yours? And I'm like, hopefully, like, you know, once you turn 16, you're able to go take the test. So May 2nd comes, and I turn 16. And I'm like, Mom, am I going to go get my driver's test? And she's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And she's like, Vanny, like, okay, let me tell you. you. You're from Mexico. That means you don't have your papers. You're not legal here. And I was like, so how am I in school? And she's just like... Um, I mean, we were able to find a way, thank God to your grandma, but um, you just, like, there's no way for you, you don't have a, you, like, there's no way for you to, you know, get your stuff, like, and then that's when I was like, so what does that mean? And she's like, well, hopefully, God willing, you marry someone. My mom's always been very pressured me into marriage at a very young age, <laughs> sadly, but, um, you know, that's whenever I was, so... All of six, 16, 17, 18, that's when I actually started to worry because all of before that, I had no idea. I was just, I just thought I was from Mexico and then every, you can just come here and, and live life. You know, I, I had no idea. But um, yeah, 16, 17, and 18, especially because, you know, me and Kim played soccer together. Uh, Kim so is the, Jenny's. The sister. Kim she's speaking about is my baby sister. <laughs> yes. So we played we played uh, club soccer together, and it was kind of, it was an, a good team. So that means we would go out of town to try to go to college showcases to you know put ourselves out there for scholarships, and that's when I started to get worried because I was like, if I can't go to college, like why am I even playing soccer? Because how how am I going to go to get a scholarship? Like there's no way. She was like, there's a way. I mean, there has to be a way. Hopefully. And then that's when, at 18 years old, when DAC, uh, President Obama passed the DACA. And then, oh, thank, thankfully, I was able to get a scholarship and have the, the DACA, so I was able to go to school. Sure. Um, do you notice a difference between the way that you were treated in the Obama era versus your experience with people who you know harbor anti-immigrant sentiment now? Just in terms of the way um, I guess you people interact with you, though, and not necessarily like legislation mm. or anything like that. Um, do you notice a difference in people's attitudes? Um, I mean, in person, no one's ever been rude to me, you know, because I've, I'm Mexican, no one like at all. Sure. A lot of people actually find it cool, you know, but I think it's also because we live in South Texas, yeah. so it's very common. So it's super common to see someone be bilingual. It's super common for you to meet someone and be like, oh, yeah, I visit Mexico all the time, you know, like... I think it's because of where we live that that's why it, you know, I've never had such a bad experience. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, just from my Facebook post, right, right there, there's people from all over the United States, all over the world commenting on that who aren't as accepting and who, who don't, who've never really met people like me who just think I'm here to steal jobs or steal, ugh, steal scholarships yeah. or... Well, like, this, <laughs> this kind of also speaks to, though... And we'll, we'll talk about your... <laughs> so she made a Facebook post that went a little viral, right? But um, the importance of, you know, the bravery of people like you and that um, you really are the people who, like, breathe life into this movement, into, in, into our ability to make change, mm -hmm. right? It's because people feel emboldened and they get this same sense of bravery on the Internet when it's someone who they can see in the abstract and not someone they have to see as mm -hmm. an actual human being. So I think, arguably, a lot of the people that 
people to even like see you face to face and be kind to you is because they are able to know you as a person and interact with you and see you as human. Mm-hmm. And by and large, I'm, I'm sure a lot of those people harbor, you know, not a lot of, but some of them certainly, right? Harbor some kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. But it's very hard to feel that when you actually begin to know people as people, which is why like yeah. the, the bravery um, that it's taken dreamers to have to you know, come out and say, I'm here, I'm an actual person, and these are things about me that, you know, you should know, um, you know, I, which is why, again, I just think it's so important. Um, just to kind of uh, backtrack a little bit, um, and then, you know, we can continue on this train of thought a little bit more later. What are the biggest and most frustrating misconceptions about either DACA itself or applying for citizenship more generally. <laughs> when people say, why don't you just get your citizenship, is one of the most frustrating questions ever because people think it's easy as just printing out a piece of paper online, paying a fee, turning it in, and you receive, oh, you're granted. No, 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 no. Um, I came here, the way I came here was through a, a temporary vis, a visitation visa. So in Mexico, you're able to apply for one. They usually last about four years, and then you go back and renew. Um, and that's how my family, I have so much family in Mexico, basically everybody besides my own family, my parents and my sister. Um, that's how they come and visit us and stuff. But even with that, now it's even harder to apply. Uh, than it was before. So sometimes I have one one of my brothers. He still can't apply for his. So I haven't seen him since I've lived in Mexico. But two of my brothers, thank God, they they've. I guess when when you renew more often and you you stay on good standing, and they see that you actually come back, and then you you know you just visit for a few days or a few weeks, and they're able to see that. You're, you keep a good standing, so it's easy for you to keep it. But um, like with me, if I were to go back and, because people just say, go back and, and, and do it the right way. And I'm like, no, even <laughs> if I tried to do that, I would have to stay a dec. Yeah, I would stay, have to stay a long time in Mexico to even reapply for that. And that is the most frustrating because people just think it's so easy. And it's not, you know, it's it's so hard and it's so expensive too. Um, just, and people are saying that DACA was a temporary order, that's something that also frustrates me. And I understand that it was, you know, and but it's the best we can possibly do and it's the best, like me, how I feel. I don't think it's hurting anybody. I, I actually think it's benefiting the United so, States. Harmless. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's what more do you like? What more do you want us to do? You know, like if you know, and that's probably just the most frustrating that people sure. think it's so easy to just do it the right way or or get it, and it's not. Yeah. You know, your story and experience is why it's also so laughable when people talk about building a wall. Cause Yes, most people come in exactly. a car and they go through the border Which like the right way. You know, we work with yeah. um, like Eddie Canales, who works for the Human Rights Center, and there. I mean, unfortunately, there have already been. What did he say yesterday? Six hundred and seven. Six hundred and seventy-six migrant deaths this year alone. No, in the last ten years, and then this year has been forty. Oh, okay. I was way. 
and I was I had a lot of caffeine yesterday. <laughs> um, okay, so then Eddie Canales from the Human Rights Center said there were how many migrant deaths? Like 40, 45 to 50 this year. Of okay. Found but that was in Brooks County alone. In County, yeah. Um so it's like it is true that you know people cross that no, way and yeah. that it's tragically you know building a lot is only going to endanger people more but the vast majority of people who come come you know, fly, fly or drive, or drive or a car exactly and even through so wasting all this money on a wall even th- the people that they say like oh they cross the river sure. or oh they like you know the you do it the dangerous way. A lot of people don't survive that. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of people don't because it's it's dangerous and yeah. it's hard. You know, there's that. It's way easier to do it <laughs> the right way. Just get you know, drive than um, than actually have to walk or or you know stuff like that. Because they actually, I've seen you know Border Patrol <laughs> this this show and it's it's a long journey. So a lot of people actually don't make it yep. through that. So you had spoken to this briefly earlier, right? But you made a Facebook post recently that went a little on the viral side. Um, and then you've also been interviewed by a number of local media news sources. Uh, why did you choose to go public with your personal story? And what has the response been like? Um, I mean, well, I'm truthfully a very honest person. So I never even knew that my parents... And when, like I said, when I turned 16,000, they were like, that's why you need to stop telling people you're from Mexico. Because straight up on my Facebook, it says, born in Monterrey, <laughs> Mexico. Yeah. And when I put that, my parents were like, why are you putting that? And I'm like, what's wrong with it? Like, I, you know, I never knew that it was, it was bad um, or that it was, it was dangerous for me or for my family. I never knew. Um, so, I mean, I've never... I've never been scared, and especially now since I'm still going, I'm still with DACA, still have my license, I still have everything. I was like, well, I mean, screw it, might as well. Like, there's a lot of people that don't know, and a lot of people that have opposing sides to it. And I mean, I, I know a lot of people. I, I've worked for a lot of places. I work for a very popular place in te- like a very popular bar. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of like I feel like me being one of those people to you know have an opinion and have a voice would open a lot of people's minds and change a lot of people's minds because people know my work ethic people know how all that I've achieved people know you know what I'm capable of and maybe that'll change someone's mind on how Mexicans are looked at so that's why I kind of was like well it's funny because my parents I had she was the one that told me like she's been like literally with me through all of this because she was like the one that that sent me before it was announced that DACA was going to end, she was the one that sent me a link that Trump was thinking about ending it. And then um, we were, it was on, I think, it was like a, a holiday, or what, what was this past holiday that just? Uh, September. September, Labor Day? Yeah. yeah, we were we were out, and that's whenever they announced it. And I just started crying. And then she was like, I just don't get it. I don't get why they would even cancel that. I don't get why, you know, they would they would take that away. And um, so my mom had texted me that same day, and she was like, don't put anything on Facebook. Don't <laughs> don't say an opinion about this. And I was like, okay. And then, like, two days later, <laughs> I posted it. And, like, my my sister and my, my parents both were all were very concerned. 
because, you know, I mean, my parents are fixed now. Mm -hmm. My parents and my sister are fixed because my sister got married at 18 to her high school sweetheart. And with marriage, the first people to get their citizenships is either if you have a kid or if you have or your parents, but since my sister didn't have a baby, my, my, the first people to be granted their citizenship was my parents. So now they're all fixed. I'm the only one that's not. And um, so they were very concerned, thinking that, you know, I would, something would happen. But then they saw the amount of, like, feedback and a lot of positive, you know, yeah, negative, uh, but mainly positive, um, I guess, like, all the comments I got mm -hmm. and they were like okay I mean we can't get mad I mean they I showed them all the personal messages I received sure. um, there's even lawyers messaging me mm -hmm. saying if something were to happen to me to call them yeah. and that they'd have my back it was pretty cool but um, I mean I showed them that and I mean I, I guess they didn't expect me to make such a big difference you know so they kind of respected that, and they were able to be like, oh, I'm so proud of you, and I was like, don't you yeah. <laughs> Well, it's hard, because the just because people have the loudest voices doesn't mean that they have the largest numbers, mm -hmm. you know? And I think most people, you know, either know your heart or, you know, generally aren't opposed to immigrants or yeah. people, you know? I think... The vast majority of people, even, I would be willing to say, feel pretty positively um, about, you know, immigration um, and just want a better system. But since the loudest voices are those, you know, saying really hateful or bigoted things, it's really hard to keep that perspective. Yeah. Because those are always the people who are the most willing to speak up, especially on a platform that mm -hmm. allows them some sort of anonymity like Facebook. <laughs> mm -hmm. And a lot of people just really just don't know. Sure. You know, so they're going to listen to, uh, like, what's it, what was his name, the one that actually was talking about DACA? It starts with um, a... Jeff Sessions. Yes, him. He's the one that's super opposed to it. Yeah. Sure. And just, oh my gosh, I, I just heard a little bit of what he was saying and it was just so wrong. It was just... Like, so mis like, you're so wrong, like, in every single, mm -hmm. there's, like, you know, just, and a lot of people listen to that, and it's like, no, like, you listen to someone who actually is in the mm -hmm. shoes, not who thinks it's all bad, it's all negative, like, no, and I think that's the most frustrating part, because people don't actually go into sources, people don't research, mm -hmm. people don't know how difficult it is. And they're going to listen to him because he has such a big audience platform. and, yeah, mm -hmm. and a big platform. And it's just, yeah, that's probably, that's the most frustrating. So, I mean, it was really cool. Like, my, my boss uh, for Izzy's, he was like, it's crazy because it's not like you came in to Izzy's when you applied saying, oh, I'm Mexican and I'll work for cheaper. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you you came and I, I, you, it's a tryout. It's sure. a very busy bar, so you have to try out. And if you're fast-paced, you're able to keep mm -hmm. up with it, you keep your job. Yeah. And um, that's what I did. And, you know, and he never even knew until... I submitted all my paperwork because you have to, I have my ID, mm -hmm. my life, my social security literally says valid for work authorization only. My, like my Mexican card says not valid for reentry to the U.S. Like, you know, and I had to explain that to them whenever they, because you can't just apply for 
it like whenever you check are you a citizen no you have to put your alien number yeah. you have to put all of that so I had to explain that to him and I um, mean he's like wow like I didn't even know and a lot of people think that it's that's kind of how Mexicans work in, through the system you know and it's not so yeah well wonderful conversation. <laughs> um, I adore you. And I'm so excited that you were able to find time out of your two job having and going to school and training and meal prepping life to come hang out with us. So I guess just finally, is there anything else that you want people to know about either you, your experience, or immigrants more generally? Um, I mean, if I had to say one thing, I would just say have an open heart about it. I wouldn't say be quick to judge. Don't listen to what President Trump or Jeff Sessions has to say. Like, actually talk to me. Like, because there's people through that post, there's people that simply didn't know and just mm -hmm. messaged me. And they're like, so why can't you apply for this? Why can't? And then I explain that to them. Sure. And, I mean, I was able to change a lot of people's minds. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so, you know, just actually before you comment or before you have an ignorant thought or before you think one way of how we're doing this or they take this or, no, like, just just ask, you know. Like, there's lots of people, there's 800,000 dreamers here <laughs> that are going through the same thing and are worried sick uh, for next next year, you know, that, that are scared because this is all in Congress's hands right now. You know, I, I did see that President Trump is talking about, you know, having a, hopefully having like a, a new DACA kind of. So hopefully that goes through. But there's, you know, it's all not, you're not assured. You're not, you don't know. You don't know what could happen. And it's scarier now because at first we were invisible. Well, they didn't know us. We, they didn't know where we mm -hmm. lived. But now they have all of our information. information. They know everything about us. They know where we work. They know where we go to school. And these are all kids that literally know no other home. I, I, if I were to go back to Mexico right now, I'd be like, what the heck is this? Because I don't remember. I was four. Sure. You know, I was a kid. I was a toddler. So I wouldn't. These are all kids just wanting to be citizens and wanting to live here, wanting to have a future here. Um, and doing it the right way. That's why there's 800,000 of us, you know? Sure. So I guess that's what, it, what I would have to say. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> cool. Starting it with, uh, y'all heard the interviews. What did you think? What were your responses? That's dorky. Okay. Well, <laughs> cut. Okay. You need to be like, it's your boy Zach from CCSO. <laughs> Can we please leave this in? Yeah. This ah, is fun. Ah. <laughs> boom, boom. Welcome to the wrap up section of the first ever podcast. Um, you heard two wonderful interviews uh, with local 
individuals, and now we're going to turn it over to a bunch more local uh, individuals. Um, the people speaking now uh, are compri comprised portion of the membership of CC Solidarity Network, um, and we're going to sort of deconstruct the sort of things we've heard and talk a little bit about some points that we want to emphasize, some points where we may not necessarily agree with uh, the previous speakers, and also just to give you all some radical things to digest. So I turn it over to the group. Gucci. Um, yeah. Radical. I guess, like, I mean, the first point, obviously, and I think it's the one that Justin ended on that was one of the most poignant for us as residents of this city is that our city is not taking a stance on these issues. And I think it's uh, imperative that we, you know, kind of make those demands. Because, I mean, it's, it's really, really ridiculous that the, you know, Corpus stands alone on something that everybody else in the state essentially has taken a position on and that's you know being against things like sb4 um and not even just that but also like all the different like cities like houston who have rejected their 287g agreements you know this is something that it's not impossible but for some reason corpus always seems to be a place where these efforts end up fizzling out or they just don't happen because you run into so many roadblocks when you run into our local politicians and the entrenched sort of political class that exists in the city. Well, I mean, it's also, um, it speaks to um, the movement too, because the movement is very, at least historically in recent history for sure, um, has been very willing um, to cater um, or to tailor their demands to what the Democrats find winnable um, and to like very much focus on electoral politics and it's like well in the meantime in the here and now we're how do we hold these people's feet to the fire like that's movement building mm -hmm. um, and it's like we let it reach this lull and they're just like very quick to forget um, how we you know won things like DACA to begin with which is like creating spaces in which, you know, folks who are undocumented are safe to speak up. Um, and that, that bravery needs to be amplified. Um, and, you know, I'm so grateful that Daniela could jump on um, and, and tell her story because I think that's one of the, you know, key things, right? And I think we've seen that in other movements too, which is why, like, even, you know, even though things like coming out like should you shouldn't have to do it's why they still have value why they're still important you know it's why like the reproductive justice movement had had speak outs and testimonials where women talked about their abortions because it's like people just need to know that like yes you know you probably know someone who is undocumented mm -hmm. or who is related to someone who is undocumented like yes you know queer people yes you know women who have had abortions because one in three women have right um, so I think just like humanizing uh, the struggle is so important and creating a movement in which undocumented folks are, are leading um, and you know I you know I think that you can speak to like community defense and creating this space and you know sort of community in which 
you know, those, the ability to do that becomes more real and the ability to let people like take the reins um, becomes more real. And I think that's when we begin to see like our city to like what, what it would take for our city to actually like take a stand, you know, um, not take a stand, but have a stance certainly, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you there that um, it would be so awesome to see the city take a stance, but we definitely need to build a grassroots like community defense against these things because often you have, um, you know, condoned like ICE and Border Patrol harassment um, to kind of sh shake things up, sift, sift out and see if anyone, um, you know, might accidentally sign their own deportation papers. Um, all of which is entirely unconstitutional against law, but totally condoned by the system that is. Um, I think that's why, um, you know, having a community defense uh, would be best. Um, yeah, I think. That, I mean, I think that speaks to like. I mean, the fact that the way you uh, you can even strategize it is whether. Like, I mean. How are you pushing for, for example, for sanctuary in Corpus? Is it simply on a policy level or is it within the community itself? And I think, you know, things like Know Your Rights training, things like community defense networks within the neighborhood really kind of helped build and laid a foundation for a sort of, I guess, the way I kind of envisage it is sanctuary within the community, a sanctuary that kind of like exists. I mean, it's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not a sanctuary in a political sense necessarily, but it's a sanctuary within a grassroots community sense and that it doesn't matter who's in power, you know, it, there's still like a community that's aware of their rights, aware, you know, where they can turn to when they need the resources. And I think that's something that exists in Corpus, obviously, but it, 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 it has not been built upon. And at this time, it's more essential, I guess, than ever. I feel like a lot of main reasons why it's not like built upon is just like, just due to lack of just like getting out there and like, showing that like the resources are here to help. Mm -hmm. So like I feel like we should like, again like we talked about this like more tabling, like more going out to events, flyering and whatnot, just trying to get people out. Yeah, there's a lot of apathy and there's also a lot of misconceptions mm -hmm. um, and, and false perceptions that need to be taken down. Um, I mean, considering, you know, where Corpus is in relation to the border, there are a lot of people that have been hyped up on the human traffic trafficking aspect, the drug trafficking aspect, which both are very you know serious problems to tackle. But it's important to keep in mind that those aren't the people they're actually tracking down. Those aren't aren't the, the people that these um, policies are hurting. The, the policies are actually hurting the people that are doing well, um, and you know they're like taking good people that are active members of their community um, and beloved ones. They're they're taking they're literally, literally taking parents from their children. Um, and it has nothing to do with, you know, morality. Um, they're just running a, a race expulsion, essentially. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, I would say that though, I mean, maybe I'm just like more optimistic or maybe I'm just nitpicking, right? Is that like, I think apathy is, in my opinion, like the wrong way to describe it, right? I think there's a degree of hopelessness that the community has earned, right? So I, I think that it's our job to kind of, as organizers, right, to restore that hope. Because I think people care, um, just in having conversations with people, I think people have like this um, real understanding of like, of the humanity of people, right? Um, 
but I think it's very hard. And this, that, you know, this is something that exists in every movement, right? Um, I think it's very hard for people to feel like they can affect change, right? Um, and that's why political education is so important um, because we know that that's not it's not true. That's not how it's not what history tells us. Um, I mean, that's not even what recent history tells us, right? I think you know um, the dreamers are such an um, inspirational example of that. I think the folks who shut down Nancy fucking Pelosi yeah. um, are such an example of that. And you know, the more we can see stuff like that, um, the more I think people will start to believe that, like, well, you know, if these folks who you know are demanding, you know, all of a million um, stay and are willing to put themselves on the line in front of, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi. Uh, a human trash that she is, uh, then it's like we have much less to risk than than they do, you know. Um, so there's just really no excuse. So the the more of that we can see, I think, the better um, it is in terms of like motivating people and you know restoring that that hope and fire. takeaway that's important kind of jumping off what you were talking about about how they're uh, those folks that shut down Nancy Pelosi who are advocating for all 11 million and it's one thing especially since Doc is the one is what's like ignited all of this this um, I guess concern from a lot of like circles is the, the, you know it, it also should challenge the narrative of like the good versus the bad sure. you know when it comes to you know the DACA recipients obviously they had to go through so many hurdles you know clean record yeah. across the board, you know, what we need is like folks to not just advocate for these people or, you know, stand with these people in solidarity, but stand with all the folks who weren't able to, yeah. you know, make it into the DACA program. Because I yeah. think it's, it's important, you know, to, you know, just when we're talking about humanizing, you know, the way we, uh, I guess, advocate and, you know, stand in solidarity with the movement, it ought to be on the grounds that you know, we're, we stand with everybody, you know, not just those who sure. contribute to our society or contribute to the tax base of our mm -hmm. city or, you know, pour money into our economy. It should be everybody because, yeah. you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, even if they're contributing to our economy, our economy is, like, exploitative anyway. So sure. Yeah. Most of them. Exactly. And we saw it with the example of the wage death incident in Ingleside. You know, the, 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 the system is built, you know, to exploit immigrant labor so it shouldn't just be on those grounds it should be on the grounds that you know they're you know we should be in favor of people <laughs> yeah. yeah well then i think this gives us a, an interesting opportunity to like begin to connect with other struggles right because i think most people well, you know at least on the internet and you know like, mm -hmm. certainly people i've encountered in real life too like so much of their resentment comes from this idea that um, undocumented folks are getting all of these rights and privileges that they don't receive and it's like well first of all they don't secondly they should and you yes. know why because you should too right, like right. the fact that you are upset because you think someone has access to health care that you don't or education that you don't 
is absurd mm -hmm. um, because those th you're right. Those things are human rights. Um, and if you're upset because someone else has it, even if they don't, right, you know, that really is just a reason to, like, fight for access to those things for everyone, right? right. So I think that needs to, like, really be, like, our jumping off point that it's, like, you're right to be upset and, like, to be angry even that, like, you don't have health care. Um, that's why we fight for it for everyone unconditionally and, you know, like, why these discussions around healthcare, discussions around, you know, access to education, um, really need to be like everyone, right? ponies. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Da, 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 da. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to the first ever CC Soul Media Podcast Extravaganza. We'll be we'll be we'll be better next time. Yeah. Or or we won't. <laughs> um, but we'll be better eventually. <laughs> or we won't. <laughs> Just keep tuning in <laughs> to find out. Find out next week. Eva pasando el trapo sobre la mesa y está cuidando que todo brille como una perla. Cuando llegue la patrona que no se vuelva a quejar. No sea cosa que la acuse de ilegal. José atiende los jardines, parecen de Disneyland. Maneja una troca vieja sin la licencia. No importa si fue taxista allá en su tierra natal. Eso no cuenta para el tío Sam. El hielo anda suelto por esas calles. Nunca se sabe cuándo nos vamos.